this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. Bragging rights. I know when Candace talked about this sermon series and started it out about a month ago, I wondered where she was going. What 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 is what is the bragging rights that we're going to be toting? What are we going to be you know, talking about, is it, is it, you know, how awesome we are? Is it that, you know, we, we have a great inheritance in heaven? Like, like what are our bragging rights? Um, and then I thought maybe she'll stick to some of those power verses we have throughout scripture. You know, the verses I'm talking about, right guys? Like, um, Philippians 4, uh, 13, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I was, I went to a Christian school growing up. We were the blue flames. Uh, that was like our, our mascot. And we had a basketball team, which I was on for one season. I'm horrible at basketball. And our, our motto was, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But I can tell you, I still can't sink a free throw to save my life. And I can't dunk through Christ who gives me strength. But those power passages, it's like bragging rights. It's like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. People just throw it around as like those, those bold, proclaiming, braggy statements. Then there's... Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 17 says, if you want to boast, boast about the Lord. So I thought maybe that's what Candace was talking about, that, that we should be bold in our proclamation of our faith, that we should declare out loud exactly who our God is because we make our boasts in Christ alone. And maybe that's what she was going to talk about. I remember we used to sing a song here like, I will make my boasting. I shouldn't sing as Josh pointed out earlier. I'm horrible singer. Um, and that, you know, I, I shouldn't boast in my singing. So, so then Acts 1.8, maybe, maybe she'd read this one. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And actually, that is one that we talked about. I thought we can brag about our having the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is something unique to our assembly, that, that the assemblies of God, we are a Pentecostal church. We believe in the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But what is it that I wanted to brag on on the week where I would get to brag a little bit. And I thought, what about that great verse that we talk about in youth ministry and kids ministry all the time? Jeremiah 29, 11. I can promise you that, that at least half of our junior hires have this memorized. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's the version I haven't memorized. There's the NLT that it says... For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has good plans for you? That God wants to give you a good future? He wants to give you a hope? You know, the Greek word is actually he wants to provide for your welfare, a word that carries connotations in our modern society, political implications, as a matter of fact, the word welfare. But it, it means that God wants for your welfare. He's got plans for you to be provided for. That promise of scripture is one that is used a lot. Do you believe it, church? That in the midst of this season, do you actually believe that God has a plan for you? And if you believe that, what does it mean? Does it, does it mean that he he knows what your job will be? Does it mean he knows what your occupation will be? What does it mean that God has a plan for you? Do you truly believe that it's a good plan? Because if you don't, it's going to change your view of God drastically. As Josh's testimony pointed out, you know, things were going well, living high on the hog, and then all of a sudden, what, what's God doing? I thought the plan was for things to stay good. 
And you lose sight that God does have a good plan, but it's our responsibility to respond to the things of this world. So, so what is it that you believe about that passage? I want to talk about that today. But first, because I have some intentions to get into some difficult things, as the Bragging Rights sermon series has been about, I want to pray. So would you pray with me wherever you're at? Just take a second to prepare to hear the word. Heavenly Father, help. Speak clearly and help us see the places in which we must apply your plan, not our own plan, because your plans are higher. Your ways are higher. Who can know them, God? Help us to submit to you, because that's the only way to find freedom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Context. Context is key. To any Bible passage or any expression, anything shared on social media, you must understand the context, because things out of context can mean something different. For example, if I told you that Hamilton is the best musical I have ever seen. You might think, wow, it must be really good, which it is, but you don't know that Hamilton is also the only musical I have ever seen from start to finish. Context is key. If I said that, that, that's, that Scoob, like the movie Scooby-Doo, the new Scooby-Doo movie, is the best new movie I have seen this year, you would probably think that Scooby-Doo is a good movie. It is not a good movie. It's just the only new movie that I have seen this year. With all the theaters closed, I haven't seen any new movies. So if I say Scoob is the best new release that I've seen this year, you might think it's great. But the context is I've only seen one movie this year. So yeah, that has to be by default the best one. It is also by default the worst one. So context matters. If you don't understand the context of the statement, you might not understand what it means. And things can be true, but also mean something to you that is false. It's your understanding that determines whether or not you, you can believe it. And, and when we study the Bible, context is key. Far too often, we just want to take verses like the ones that I said earlier and apply them without understanding the context. So I want to give you the context that Jesus walked the earth when he was here. You see, he stepped into a nation in political turmoil. Political turmoil. I want to describe this for you for a second. Think about it. A, a system of governance where one party has the power and another party is clamoring, where people are threatening war regularly, where there are religious implications to, to both sides of the argument, where there is an outside body demanding higher taxes while another body states don't even pay those taxes, where there's, there's opinions on every side and Jesus steps into that world. And everyone is demanding his answers. Right now, it feels like everyone is demanding answers for questions that have been asked for centuries. They want solutions to problems that have existed for generations. And they want them provided in simple, easy-to-understand sound bites that don't take into account context. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how the religious teachers intended to trap Jesus. You see, Jesus, he came and they expected the, the Messiah, the religious leader, the great prophet, to come in and free them from the Roman Empire. See, Rome came in and it said, hey, Israel, you can still exist. We won't kill you all, but 
you're going to be Roman now. You're going to pay us money and we'll let you still govern yourselves a little bit, but we're going to oversee you. We're going to give you, you know, someone to watch over you and make sure you pay us our taxes, you pay us our tribute, and we're going to run you. And Israel said, okay, because otherwise Rome would have just slaughtered them. So they submitted to that and they were stuck in that. And a lot of Jewish people didn't like that. They believed that they were God's people, and because they were God's people, they could not be ruled by anyone else. And they attempted occasionally to overthrow that Roman. They would, they would subvert it. As a matter of fact, there were multiple riots regularly, that it was not uncommon for political rivals to rise up, get a band of Jews, they were called zealots, and they'd go to war with the Roman guards. And then there would be executions to put them down. There was all this rioting in the streets, people stealing, people murdering, people killing, all to get a political gain. That's the system Jesus stepped into. And in Mark 12, verse 13, the Pharisees say, we're going to get Jesus to take a side because he never did. He always, he stood in the middle as each side clamored next to him and he said, I stand for God. I, I, I'm not taking these sides that you want me to. And they plan to trap him. So verse 13, later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Isn't it? They're, they're kind of like puffing him up. They're trying to boast, get him, get him feeling very good about himself so that they can trap him. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? See, they, they know how to ask the question in a way that any response would be wrong. They're like, if he says, yes, pay your taxes, then we can say, you're a Herodian. Herodians were people who were submitting under Herod and following the ways of the Hellenistic Jews, another political group. Hellenistic Jews would be Jews that say, we should all become like Greeks, but still be Jews, and then we won't be persecuted. Herodians were people who were saying, we follow Herod, the, the leader who submitted under Roman authority, yet we're still Jews. And, and if he says, pay your taxes to Caesar, we can call him Hellenistic and Herodian. And if he says, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, well, then we can call him a zealot. You see, zealots, they were the, they were the like, the, the rioters in the streets, the one holding signs saying, leave Rome now, leave Rome now. The people who would, who would get weapons and collect armies and go to battle against Roman officials, they would rob from tax collectors and they would make all kinds of trouble for the Jewish people. So they could trap him saying, nope, see, I knew it. He's an extremist. He's a zealot. Or they could trap him and say, see, I knew it. He's a Hellenistic Jew, just like all of them. And they were trying to trap him. And in 15, it says, should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. So they get him a coin. And then they handed it to him. He asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. His reply completely amazed them. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Give to God that which is God's. This verse has actually been used a lot online. I'm, I'm following a lot of religious blogs and posts talking about what we should do in light of COVID, how churches should respond to the 
the requests of our government and how we should submit and when we shouldn't and what is this line and, and all of that. And, and he says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. You see, the problem that Jesus was addressing, the problem that was brought to him as a trap, it was a political problem. They came to a religious person, a, 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 a prophet. They believed the prophet. He was actually God. They came to God and they said, God, solve our political problem. We don't know where to stand. Solve our political problem. And, and Jesus was standing in and amongst all these political parties. He was standing between Hellenistic Jews, Herodians. He was standing between Sadducees, who were the, the Jewish religious leaders, but they were also the aristocracy. See, the Sadducees were a whole nother political group. They were actually a religious group who thought they could gain political power by, by maybe playing both sides. Then there was the Amharets. This is another entire group, but the Amharets didn't fall under an actual title. It's, it's more a term that means the common people, the people who don't have time to apply all the laws to their life. It's, it's like the farmers and the fishermen. They, they don't have time to, to do all of the minutia of the law, so they're the common people. And then that most of the disciples, by the way, were the Amharets. Um, except Matthew. He was actually a Hellenistic Jew because he worked as a tax collector, so they would have called him Hellenistic. So, so Jesus had a Hellenistic Jew as a disciple. He had the Amharets. And then there were the Aseans, another political party, well, religious political party. They believed that it was the Jews' responsibility to completely segregate from the world altogether. Think the Amish, the Aseans. They, they went out into the wilderness, and they lived in small communities, and they didn't intermarry and they didn't spread outside their communities so they actually died out because how do you survive without the influx of outside people and John the Baptist would have certainly known the Essenes because he lived out in the wilderness so he was maybe affiliated with them and aware of them then you had the Samaritans former Jews who intermarried that's the woman at the well yet another group that Jesus had to play or ploy with politically and resolve like his Samaritans and the Jews and the Gentiles and the Romans and the Hellenistic Jews and the Sadducees and the Amharets and the Rhodians. And then he had the Pharisees, the ones who were always trying to trip him up. These were the people who hold all the religious power. They were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who would, who would trap and try, try to trap Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul, one of the apostles later in the Bible, he was a Pharisee before he became a Christian, before he followed Jesus. Then there were the zealots, the people who wanted to go to war with Rome, and they often used their religious strength to do it. Peter was one of those. Peter was believed to have been a zealot. He carried a sword with him, and he cut off a Roman guard's ear, somebody who was willing to do whatever it took to make Israel the throne again. You see, he had all these political parties, and they were all on the right and the left, and they were trying to figure out where he stood, and they were like, you can't be in the middle we're at war, you need to decide. And, and they asked him political questions. And here's the problem with politics. Whenever I'm preparing a message, I go to biblical commentaries and I, I read them. And Matthew Henry's is a commentary I go back to. It was a commentary of the whole Bible, an exhaustive commentary written back in the early 1700s, 1706 as a matter of fact. And this is what Matthew Henry had to say about this passage. Nothing is more likely to ensnare the followers of Christ than bringing them to meddle with disputes about worldly politics. Jesus avoided this snare by referring them to the submission they had already made as a nation. Jesus avoided the problem of politics by referring them to the submission they had already made as a nation. And all that heard him marveled at his great wisdom when he answered. 
You see, the Jewish people, as a people group, as a nation of Israelites, decided together to submit under Roman authority. And once that decision was made, the answer was clear. Should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Did you agree to submit to Caesar? Yes, we did. Then there you go. So, do we need to submit to our political leaders and authority? Do you pay your taxes? Do you collect benefits? Do you work in this country? Do you have a social security number? Are you a citizen of these states? Then just like Caesar, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to the government that which they demand of you because you have agreed to submit under their authority. It's not easy to give to Caesar. It's not easy to give to your government. The problem with politics is we all want power. We want power. We want power. But Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. I don't care about that. So what is it that we're supposed to give to Caesar? What are we supposed to give to Caesar? To determine this, I wanted to go to a different passage. This one I'm going to read fairly quickly, but it is very painful as I read it. So I wanted you to hear it. Romans 13, 1 through 5. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished, for the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and then they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They're God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So, I'm going to read this one twice. So you must submit to them, do not, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. So you must submit to them. So you must submit to them. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to Caesar. According to Paul here in Romans, what is it that we have to give to Caesar? We have to give him respect, honor, and submission. This is not easy. This is not easy because America was birthed out of a rebellion. Our nation, which is still very young in the history of the world, was birthed out of a rebellion to the authority that we believe was asking too much. So then how can we say it is right to submit? Especially for those of us that, that have the very true belief it was founded by Christian men. Therefore, it's a Christian country. So then we were founded in a rebellion. I want to be rebellious. You tell me that I can't do something, I'll show you that I can. I, this is in my spirit and in my heart deeply. Anytime I've been on a mini golf course and there's a sign that says don't climb on the rocks, I climb on the rocks. I can't help myself. If it says keep off the grass, all I can think is, what's the grass going to do? When a door says don't push, I have to try because maybe it'll work. My nature and desire is rebellious. I'm an American. It is deeply rooted in me. By our very nature, we are proud and rebellious. We're the land of the free, the home of the brave. You can't tell me to do anything. But God actually can, and he does. And he tells us to submit to the governing authorities. And what's our immediate reaction? But wait, 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 wait. I want to deal with that. Wait, wait, wait. That, that immediate reaction is, I don't always have to submit. 
That's the response of a child. I know that because I work with children. Anytime I tell a teenager, you must submit to your parents and their rules and authorities, their immediate response is, well, there's an exception to that. Yeah, there is one exception to that, but is this that exception? And they go, no. Then why did you bring it up? Just because we want to find the loophole. We want to find the way out. We want to find a way in which we don't have to do what we're told to do. However, sometimes the answer for a believer is to do what the word says. And it says, submit to your governing authorities. But, 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 what about, what about, what about? As believers, sometimes we need to just stop looking for loopholes. See, the Pharisees, they were, they were huge at this. They wrote a book of rules to add on to the law because the law that God gave had a certain number of laws they had to keep. They wrote the Talmud, which created a hedge around the laws. Then they made another group of rules around those rules, but they still kept finding the loopholes in the laws so they could do what they really wanted, so they could follow their heart's desire. It all comes down to your motives. If your motives are to break the rules, it doesn't matter if you're finding a loophole. It's the spirit that matters. Are you trying to break the rules just because you can? Or are you trying to follow the rules out of respect and honor for the authority which you have submitted to? Submission is not an easy thing for us to understand in our modern-day sentimentality. I remember an argument that happened at a Thanksgiving dinner where um, one of my aunts, a very outspoken, no one, I'm independent, I'll do what I want. I never said I'd submit to my husband and my vows, and neither will my daughters. And my mom sat there and said, I am happy and proud to submit to my husband. And you have a great husband, too. You should be willing to. And things erupted at that table, man. They actually didn't come back for a few more years. Submission is not an ugly thing. Submission is saying, I so care and respect and trust that I will allow myself to give up my own rights, my bragging rights, and my privileges because I am a part and I trust that you would submit to me as well. A believer in submission is someone following the example that God laid because Jesus submitted to the authority over him. He submitted to his father. He submitted to the rulers and the governing authorities, even unto death. Submission is not something we should be afraid of. Submission is something we should be required to participate in. Stop looking for these loopholes because Jesus said to follow the law of the land and to worship God. There is a way to do both. So only the only time that you're allowed to break the laws of the government, this is the one loophole, is if that law prevents you from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth because Jesus said one day they will worship in spirit and in truth. So does the law prevent you from worshiping God in spirit and and in truth. For example, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We talked about them in the Bible trivia, these three young, four young Hebrew boys who during the exile were sold or sent to a land that was not their own, and they were forced to live under a king who was not godly, a king who was by all intents and purposes evil in God's eyes, and they were forced to live under him to the point that they would have had to change the way they dressed. They would have had to change the way they talked. They would have had to change their own names. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not their Hebrew names. Daniel is his Hebrew name, and we remember him as that because he wrote the book. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we call them by their Babylonian names. And as far as we know, they went by those Babylonian names without argument in submission. 
We hear that there were occasions, however, where the the submission to the authority would have prevent their worship of God. The first example is when they first arrived, they said, all right, here's the food that you must eat as men in the king's household. And that food was meat that was offered to gods. It was meat that was used in the worship of other gods. And they said, we can't eat meat that was sacrificed to other gods. We can't eat meat that breaks our Hebrew diet. We must keep kosher. And the only way they could have kept a kosher diet in that society was to eat only fruits and vegetables at that time. Some breads and some other things, but mainly fruits and vegetables. So they became vegetarian. And they didn't just say, we refuse. They said, would it be okay if we eat only fruits and vegetables because we cannot break our religion? They went to those in governance over them and requested. Now, if those in governance refused, then they have to become rebellious because it prevents them from worshiping in spirit and in truth. But they first requested. And that request was granted, and they ate the vegetables, and they became healthy. So healthy, in fact, that that became the diet for all of the young men in the kingdom's house, in the king's household. They submitted first, they found a solution, and it was resolved. Another time that happened was with the golden statue. We all know this story growing up. If you don't, I'll sum it up for you quickly. Nebuchadnezzar is like, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, everybody knows it. So I'm going to make a golden statue of myself. It was huge. It was like a skyscraper. Golden statue, and anytime the music plays, all people in the entire city must bow down and worship my statue. Well... The Bible tells us, it's in the Ten Commandments, you cannot worship any graven image. You cannot worship an idol made by man-made hands. You can only worship God. This is in spirit and in truth. This is the heart of the law. We cannot break this law. You cannot submit to your governing authority if it tells you you have to worship something other than God. So they refused. And then they were brought into the king's presence. But even in the king's presence, they showed respect and honor. I want to read for you their response to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. Now he continues, and and they continue, and it says, your majesty. You notice there's respect there. This is the person who is demanding them to worship a golden statue. They say, your majesty. They show respect and honor. Then it goes on. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue you have set up. There is a line we will not cross. We will worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, submission means that that might not look exactly the way we want all the time. I guarantee you that the early Christians did not want to have to huddle in corners and caves. I guarantee you that those believers who had to hide their faith and do baptisms in basements did not want to do that, but they could do it in spirit and in truth. I will always worship my God in spirit and in truth. It might not always look the way it did two years ago. It might not always look the way it does today but it will always happen. I will submit there is only one loophole and I'm going to stop looking for other ways out because I've already submitted. And once I've done it, I I submit to my wife in marriage. I can't change that. Not that I would ever want to. I am very blessed, but I can't change it. I submit to my country. I won't change it. So if they tell me this is the law, this is the rule, this is the way you do it, 
I've got my answer. Now, I can openly want it to change. I can invest in my society. I can be political, but I cannot allow the problem of politics, the separation and division, to prevent me from the call of a believer, unity and connection. When politics divide us, that is the problem. Religion is designed to connect us. I will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus made it clear, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. That is my submission under his authority. That is my taxes. That is my time in work and my, my paying back my society. That is my investment in the civil discourse and making sure that things are done to protect people in my voting, in my rights. I need to give to Caesar. But then he says, give to God what is God's. So what is God's? The government wants my submission. It wants my coins. It wants my money. God desires my heart. And we say that like it's simple to understand. We tell children, just let Jesus into your heart. I am 33 years old this year. I don't know what that means in the tangible, in the literal. I understand the physical metaphor of allowing him into my very being and self, but, but literally, what does that mean? If I love something... I'll listen to it. I think that's one thing. If I, if I love God, I'm going to be obedient to him. He wants us to be obedient. If, if I need to give to God what is God's, I need to give him my obedience. The government wants my submission. God gets my obedience. And I submit to my government out of obedience to God because he calls me to. God also wants my repentance. He wants me to acknowledge the things I've done wrong in the past. And I have not been submissive to my government in the past. I have held hatred in my heart for my fellow man in the past. I have lied. I have cheated. I have stolen. I have lusted. I have, I have become quick to anger. I have allowed hate to seep into my heart because I'm a human. But I repent of those things. And I strive to change. God wants our hearts. That's what that means. So we need to give to him our obedience. We need to give him our, our love. We need to give him our time. God longs for you to just sit with him and worship him and love him. We're so quick to claim our political party. You see, there were a lot of political parties in Jesus' day. There's a, a lot of smaller groups vying for political power in our day, but we have a, a largely a two-party system. And if you don't loudly proclaim to be a part of one, then it is loudly assumed you're a part of the other by those in this one, even though you might not be in that one, but you're not being loud about which party you're in. Are you right or are you left? Are you conservative? Are you liberal? You're a Christian, so you must be, be one. And if you're not a Christian, you must be the other. These assumptions of the political parties are the problem with politics because they prove only one thing, that we are divided. I see Facebook posts that have assumptions in them that pain me because they don't understand the context behind what they're crying out. There is truth in statements like Black Lives Matter. There is truth in statements like love is love. There is truth in statements like love wins. And I want to support all of those statements quickly and easily because there is truth there. But the context that someone else might understand and assume of those might be hateful. The context extrapolated out to the nth degree might mean to one, if I say black lives matter and they do, might mean that other lives don't. Is that what you're saying? Or if I say that love is love, then there's the assumption that I am supporting a lifestyle in which the Bible does not support. 
even though that statement is true. Love is love, and you can love anyone. But the Bible makes statements not about your affection. It makes statements about your actions. And the statement that love wins out in the end forgets the fact that there is justice and a just God who loves us must require the punishment for sins. Otherwise, he doesn't love us. So there is truth, but in the full context, which can't be shared in, what was it, 120 characters that Twitter used to allow? Now it's like 240. You can't explain that entire concept in a quick soundbite, so it's forgotten. People are on the right and the left, and they demand we take a side. And just like Jesus, I will stand in the middle, and I will say it is not as simple as that. If you make me choose a side, I pick up. Every time. I'm not looking to the right or to the left. I'm looking up. Because the cross is bigger than the open arms. It's the way to the Father that I can access. Stop looking down here on earth for the answers to the political problems and start looking to the Savior, to the answers to the spiritual problems. And only way we'll fix anything is if we fix here. Put your Savior first and yourself last. Then you can submit in a way that can cause change. In the beginning, I read a passage. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. To give you a future and a hope. Do you believe that? If you know that God has a plan for you, then you know he loves you. If you know he loves you, won't you love him back? And if you love something, you submit to it. I want to give you some context for that passage. Jeremiah 29, 11 was written just before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were sent to Babylon. Just before the Jewish people had to submit to being exiles, outsiders, outcasts. It was written to a culture that would have to live in a new land. As a matter of fact, just a few verses before Jeremiah 29, 11, God says that you will be captives and exiled in Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for your children so that they may have grandchildren. Multiply and do not dwindle away. Jeremiah says, you're going into exile. You will be sent to a land that is not your own. When you're there, be a part of that society. Don't, don't cast yourselves out. Don't, don't be separated from that life. Live in that society. Marry, have children, have grandchildren, eat their food, build houses, have homes. Be a vibrant part of your society. We should be vibrant parts of our society but never lose sight that you are living as exiles in Babylon. He had a plan for them. The plan was for them to become hope to the Babylonians. 
You see, Babylon is more than just a location thousands of years ago. Babylon is a biblical theme. If you read throughout the Bible, whenever you hear the term Babylon, think society. It's, it's about secular society. Secular society is one that says the ways of God don't matter. Secular society says, have fun and have it now. But God says something else because he's got a bigger plan. I had a debate with somebody who said, this is a Christian nation. I think it's a nation with Christians in it. But I believe that America is Babylon. It's, it doesn't take much looking around to see sex sold on every app. It doesn't take much amusement before you can find the, the lustful intentions on every media platform. The hate propagated by the news media, the, the simple fact that the politics are dividing us. America is Babylon. We, as believers, are exiles, outsiders, and outcasts. So what are we called to do? Live have homes, have children, have grandchildren, and be a vibrant part of society. Why? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for your good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Give to God that which is God's. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. You want to know how to apply this? If you're putting politics over your faith, if you're pursuing the secular over the spiritual, get things back in line. If you're pushing agenda over being an ambassador for Christ, get things back in line. If you're rebelling openly against your own authority given to you by God, Get things back in line. Submit. And then cause the change you want. This was explained to me by a leader I respect. He says, I don't believe in masks, but I will go visit my governor and tell him I want it changed while wearing one. I'm not telling you what my stance or beliefs or opinions are on that matter. I'm stating that he said, I don't believe in this and I will protest it while wearing one because I will submit to my governing authority. If you struggle with submission, find a way. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like an exile, but part of this world. As believers, we should feel like outsiders in this society because we are. Our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. Things on earth are bad and they will get worse. I'm looking forward to a hope and a future in heaven. Those words written to those exiles thousands of years ago hold true to us today if we understand that we are outsiders. Maybe you don't feel like an outsider and you, maybe you want to become a part of this family here today. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you now are are in, it means you're now out of the world. You leave the world and you come into God's house. You, you get to become a part of the family, but that means you're no longer part of the society. 
means you're an outsider. You're an exile. And exiles build homes, build houses, have children, live vibrantly, and submit. It seems backwards, doesn't it? Believers should rise up and we should take power because God is on our side and God is for us. Who can be against us? That's true. But in its context, no one can be against us. But we get to be for them. We want what is good for them. And what is good for them is us being a vibrant part. I hope this word has has helped. I hope you can see that, that God wants good for you, but that good might not look what you had intended it to be. It might look a little bit different than what you always thought. It might mean submitting to things that you don't understand. It might mean responding to rules in a way that is less than rebellious. But it will always mean standing up for what is right with love and submission, with peace and patience. So if you want to respond to this message today, if you want to say, I want to become a believer, a part of the family, even if that means I'm an exile, you can do that today. You can invite God into your heart. You can repent of your sins. You can say, God, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. Jesus, will you forgive me of my past and make me a new person? Can I follow you from this day forward in the best of my ability? Maybe you need to respond by submitting to some authority over you that God has placed there. Or maybe you need to respond by taking the politics out of the place it has been put in. Heavenly Father, we're not of this world. We're your children, called by your name. But we still walk this earth as stewards that you called us to. Help us to make the world a better place in the ways you show us in your word, by obeying you submitting wherever we can and causing change. Help us to speak well, to show love. For those who are making decisions, help them follow you. If you want to receive Jesus today, if you want to become a new person today, If you want to pray a prayer and ask for forgiveness today, do so right now. Just say, Jesus, forgive me for what I've done wrong and help me follow you. If you've prayed that prayer, go to fe.church forward slash amen and let somebody know. Take a next step of faith. Don't leave it lay here. If you're making a change in your life, giving up your own plans for God's plans, and you need help, message me this week. Let's talk. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for speaking through me. And thank you for the ability to gather 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Jason, for that challenging word today. Our world is so divided. Are you choosing right, left, wherever you are? Make sure you're ultimately choosing up. Choose God. Thank you guys so much for worshiping with us today. Thank you for being here. We love you guys. We miss you. Make sure you join in next week. Candace brings us a new, powerful sermon series. Not going to want to miss it. Have a great week, everyone. We love you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I-N-N. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.
How you doing, guys? All right. I'm not sure if you guys remember me. My name's Josh Keeney. <clears throat> Hello to everyone out. <clears throat> so we're having mic difficulty. All right. Awesome. So I think a lot of you know me. I've been coming to Freedom Valley for about four or five years now. Um, man, after finding Jesus, I can honestly tell you my life has gotten so much better yeah, I used to be angry all the time and just unfulfilled but you know since meeting him it's 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 been good um, my days are brighter I have faith that everything is gonna turn out okay no matter what um, you know before Jesus I was kind of a runner I would 
run. If something went wrong, run. Um, I, did, I never took ownership. I was undisciplined. And, you know, after meeting him, I, I kind of started to see those things as just a bump in the road. And it was kind of like God was testing me, saying, hey, if he gets over this bump, we're going to give him a little bit more. But I was talking to Candace the other day, and, you know, I was telling her, I said, Candace, man, things were getting so good. And that's just when God decided to kind of put me in check. You know, usually the reasoning behind that is because right about that time when everything's getting good is right about that time when I kind of stop praying and I lose that connection with him. I forget that he's the one that pulls the strings and it's not me. You know, she said something that rang so true. It is the complacency and comfort. And with anything in life, whether it be your business, your job, your relationship, if you get complacent, you're gonna stop growing. You're gonna stop moving forward. So right before COVID happened, my wife and I we were living our best life. We had two businesses, they were flourishing. Our careers were going fantastic. I mean, as my father said, he said, you're living a little high on the hog. So we got used to that. I mean, we got used to the, the blessings just continuing to come in every single week. Things, everything we touched just kind of turned to gold. And then COVID hit. And it was like, wow, what a smack in the face. And I think a lot of you probably feel that way. You know, I ended up losing my job. I uh, had to shut down my business. Nobody really wanted to throw axes in a pandemic. Um, and my wife was told she would most likely get laid off from the hospital as an occupational therapist because they needed the beds for COVID. So on top of that, I was actually struggling with my health as well, health. So um, things were really just going downhill. And it seemed like, just like in a blink of an eye, so what do you do as a person when all this happens, right? You probably throw a pity party. I, I know I did. I, I never got out of my sweatpants. Just kind of was like, whatever, Netflix, here we go. But there's a rule at our house. You can only be in a pity party for so long. And then you take ownership. So I took ownership. I prayed. I found that connection with God again that I was missing. I mean, I surrounded myself in him. I listened to every podcast I could. I listened to every sermon. I got up in the morning and I thanked him for the breath in my lungs. I remember at one point I thanked him for a hot shower, for the air conditioner. Like, it was like 96 degrees. Thank you, Lord. But I mean, I really could not stop thanking him. And I'm a true believer that God favors those that don't quit. So I didn't quit. I reached out to my boss. I ended up finding a job I could do from home. It actually paid more money. That was awesome. We got loans, we got grants to keep the business afloat. And we're not where we were, but we're making strides to get back there. We're not closed, so that's great. My wife ended up actually getting overtime to help those with COVID. It was just like, wow. Like, <laughs> again, we went through, through this valley and he came and he got us and he said, all right, I got you. And he took care of us. But we had to remember who was pulling the strings. You know, there's, there's something that I always 
say. I always have it written down so when, you know, the days get long and I want to quit or when it feels like, you know, my guardian angel just went out for lunch and just forgot to come back, I, I read it to myself. It says, the universe, the universe, karma, or God himself, respond to those that stand tall and refuse to give up. You're going to go down paths that are lonely, disappointing, and rejecting. But that's when you refuse to give up until life gives in. Nothing can resist a person that has that kind of commitment, that passion, that fire. And do you think God is going to hold back blessings from someone like that? I don't. It sounds a lot like David from the Bible, actually. So I kind of hope this is a wake-up call for someone out there that might be going through the same season that I went through. You know, you're going through the motions, but you kind of lost your connection with God. You know, every day might be a pity party, but it's time to get out of the sweatpants, turn Netflix off, get your butt in gear, because no matter how tough it gets, I need you all to never stop talking to God. I need you to never stop praying. And in the words of the best used pastor I know and the worst karaoke singer ever made, don't stop believing. Have a good day, guys. Josh's word. Josh's word today comes out of a response from the sermon last week that what can you do? What can you do? Josh identified he was in a season where he didn't know what to do, so he just started thanking God. He just started recognizing the things God did for him already. As we round out this time of worship, I'm going to ask you to do the same. Spend some time thinking of things to thank God for in your life. The TV you're watching this on, the, the cell phone that's streaming, the ability to worship, the food on your table, the shoes on your feet, the couch you're sitting on. Just spend a moment thanking God for the things we have.